Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, our paranormal and true crime stories are covering all over the place. Let's just be honest. Uh, The bad guy I'm covering was a bad guy in several states. To name a few are just Texas, Colorado, Nevada. So mom had her choice, really, of where she was going to be covering her paranormal as well as where she was going to be getting the beverage. And I'm super excited about what beverage she chose because you brought beer. I did. I did just for you. She did. I thought Colorado has a ton of brewing companies, so surely it would not be too hard to find a Colorado beer that I might perhaps like. Uh, I did find one right away, actually, and it is called Peach Stand Rambler. It is from the Odell Brewing Company, and it is a blonde ale. Oh, now before you taste it, I want to read this description because I think it's so poetic. (laughs) There's nothing quite like the summer harvest of Palisade peaches. Peach Stand Rambler is our tribute to the hands that carefully tend those orchard. A blonde ale brewed to extenuate fresh Palisade peaches. This beer is refreshing and bright like a calm Colorado sunset. So let's see if we can taste that. So it's it's peach flavored beer. Yep. (laughs) okay well it's seasonal i was excited about beer i don't know how i feel about fruity beer well we'll see um i should say it's from fort collins colorado to be specific it's a really really pretty it's a a pretty can it's a fun can i know poetic story on there the can is beautiful the artwork is beautiful on here. even on the the box the box i know (laughs) it's it's so much fun. I, I, my eyes went straight to it, and I thought, "Oh yes, this is from Colorado. I'm getting it." <laughs> I didn't even look any further. Well, okay. Well, it's pretty looking. Let's see how good it tastes. Let's pour it into our new glasses. All right, Mama. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, that's really good. It's very light because it is a blonde ale Mm -hmm. and it has a hint of peach. Like I said, I don't like flavored beer normally, but this is refreshing and crisp. Yeah. No, it's very, it's very good. I don't think it's too peachy though. I think it's pretty peachy. (laughs) Well, you're peachy. (laughs) (sighs) Take a big gulp, mom. Got it. This story is one that may lead you to go double check that front door is locked. Hey. Go ahead. Go check. I'll wait. <laughs> so this guy, I don't even ugh, I don't even want to say his name. So I've been on this true crime book kick, but I kind of forced that to come to an end after I read this most recent book, Sarah's Story by Sarah Leah Pisson. P-I-S-A-N. Not because it wasn't good. But with research for the podcast and some of the dark stuff that we cover, I may need to pick up a good love story. (laughs) So if any of you listeners have a good recommendation (laughs) that's not quite dark, I do need a little break sometimes. Send them, send the recommendations my way. Anyway, so this book, Sarah's Story, is basically an autobiography of Sarah. And within her story, she tells about this crazy couple of years of her life. I'm going to do my best to tell her story. If you're more of a watcher of the things than the reading of the things, I suggest the ID Discovery show uh, called Obsessed Dark Desires. Sarah's story is told in season one, episode one, and it's called Paging Sarah. Okay. And I want you to keep in mind, this is not the only case of this killer. It honestly why I wanted to share it is because it really shows how demonic this man was. Goodness. So the year is 1980. It's January. And Sarah has just separated from her husband and has hit the road for Las Vegas for a fresh start. Sarah is 19 years old Mm. with three daughters. Oh, my gosh. Five, four, and three. 
The four of them are excited for their new lives in Las Vegas. They move into a home with a couple, John and Sally, until she can get her feet on the ground. A couple days after being in town, Sarah gets interviews lined up for a job right away. She's like really responsible. Her first interview is at Terrible Herbst. It's a gas station. She gets the job right away and starts that night. On her first night working, she meets another girl that works there, Sherry. It's Sherry's day off, but she had just stopped by the station for something. She was on her way out on a date with her new boyfriend. Sherry and Sarah click right away. The girls start to get very close. They're both around the same age. They're both very happy-go-lucky personalities, just positive girls. It had been about two months. Sarah had purchased an apartment for her and her girls to live in. She found a great babysitter for the girls while she worked her crazy random hours at the station. She was beautiful. She could stand her own. She said some of the crowd could be a bit rough at the station, but most were locals that she recognized daily. She was happy in Vegas, and she made a very good friend in Sherry. Now, Sherry was obsessed with her new boyfriend. Besides Sarah knowing that his name was Andrew Ireland, that's really all she knew of him. She kept asking to meet him, but Sherry just kept saying, he's just a loner. He doesn't do well with other people. But all of her stories about Andrew were about how generous he was, how he was such a gentleman with her, and she was really falling in love with him. Interesting, but she didn't bring him around. Mm -mm. He would come and pick her up from the station every once in a while, Mm -hmm. but he didn't come in. He was just kind of a loner. Sarah remembers that Andrew... Drove a really nice car, and he would, come, like I said, he'd come and pick Sherry up from work sometimes. Now, one time when she turned to wave goodbye to Sherry as she was getting into Andrew's car, mm-hmm. she saw Andrew staring at her. I mean, a full-on stare. She said that she instantly felt uncomfortable. Quote, I had such an eerie feeling. He made me feel like a piece of meat. Ugh. One morning, Sherry comes into work very upset sarah tried to coax her friend what's wrong you know you can talk to me but sherry is really quiet and she just has tears welling in her eyes and she's not saying anything finally she just yells out he's married okay are you happy no and she storms out of the station the next day sherry doesn't show up for work oh no and that was not like sherry at all she was never just a no call no show it wasn't like her and a missing persons case was opened. Investigators come to the station to interview co-workers, and they ask the normal questions. Who did she hang out with? Were there any problems? You know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Sarah can't think of anything, but shares what she knows about the state Sherry had been last seen in, as well as the name of her boyfriend, Andrew Ireland. The next afternoon, Sherry's Jeep is found parked in a shopping center parking lot, but no Sherry. Six weeks go by. No answers. No Sherry. And Sarah's life goes on. Goes on. Of course, she has three small children. Sarah actually got promoted to manager, and it was a really big deal with a lot of responsibility. She actually said that the station she was made to be manager of was nicknamed, quote, the armpit of the West. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) A few weeks after getting her new position at this new station... A man comes up to her. You must be Sarah, he asks her. At first, she's like, uh, how do you know my name? Right. But it's a small town. And just like the last station she was coming from, there's a lot of locals. Oh, so this isn't. It's an it's the same uh, terrible Herbst kind of a chain. Okay, but but it's it's not the same place. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So she's like, you know, just assuming he might just be a local and he just heard she was going to be working there or something. And boy, oh boy, was he good looking. He introduces himself as Robert Generoso. They flirt for a little while. He asks her out on a date. She kind of has her guard up because she doesn't know him. And she has three little girls at home. Right. So she politely says, no, thank you. She has, uh, you know, her daughters and this new manager gig. And he's understanding. He accepts her answer. He turns to walk away. But he says, I can wait. Don't forget about me, okay? And she answers, I couldn't. 
She starts to look forward to the handsome Robert's visits at the gas station daily. Oh. Time passes. Still nothing on the missing Sherry. It's been four months. Now with this new job and responsibility comes a pager. The manager was supposed to be able to be reached at all hours of the day. So this beeper is kind of weird. So it would beep. it go beep, beep, beep. And then a live message would come through. Like you could hear it. Mm-hmm. So they were happening right as they were sent. And so she had, once she heard the beep, 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 like she had to go and listen to it because, you know, something could be an emergency. Yeah, exactly. Sarah gets home from work one night and jumps in the shower. While in the shower, she hears the beep, 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 prompting that there will soon be an upcoming message. So she jumps out of the shower quickly, puts a towel around herself and goes towards the pager in her room to listen for the message. It says, you look good in a towel. (gasps) she walks over and closes the curtains to her room now either this was a very strange coincidence or someone was watching her that has that had access to her pager odd sexual messages like this start coming in more frequently and over time they start to become more vulgar she said that in a few messages she could even hear him masturbating hey she has children remember young girls at home She said that when the pager would beep, she would run off with the pager to another room so that the girls could not hear the vulgar sexual things the man on the other end was saying. Mm. Then one night after another vulgar message came through, she heard what she believed to be a soft whimper, an animal maybe. She wasn't sure. She didn't want to let her mind wander to the possibilities. Did she not go to the police with this? No. Some nights she would just turn the pager off. She didn't want to tell her boss. Because this was a mandatory thing. And she was 19. Keep in mind, she's 19. This is a huge, you know, promotion. She's a manager. And this is a mandatory thing that comes with the job. She doesn't want to jeopardize her job. Right. And, you know, she's like, I can take a couple beeps here and there and tell the police. What is she going to tell them, though? Like, crude messages are coming through? Okay. One day at work, as she's standing behind the cash register, she makes the realization that her beeper number is posted right behind her Uh, visible to not only anyone that comes into the booth but even to somebody just walking by outside oh that's ridiculous now during this time she finds some comfort and honestly loves the distraction that robert gives her when he comes into the station every day asking her out i mean come on though dude like get a clue (laughs) anyway on this particular day he asks her to beer and pizza and she says, sure, call me sometime and we can set it up. He's so thrilled and he leaves. About 15 minutes later, her coworker yells for her saying that he has, she has a phone call. It's Robert. Hey, it's some time. Let's go out tonight. She agrees, gives him her address and tells him to pick her up at seven. Before hanging up, he says, I've been looking forward to this date for a long time. She instantly got the heebie-jeebies. Something about the tone and how he said it or something gave her the chills. Her gut told her, don't go. Friends, always listen to your gut. So okay. did the voice sound a little bit like the beeper voice? No. They, and she was, no, not at all. She decides to stand him up and stays at work. She plans it and stays at work until around 930. Long enough that he would have gotten the hint and would have left from her apartment. She was very nervous for when he would come into the station next and what he would say. The next evening, out of the corner of her eye, she sees his truck pulling in. She takes a deep breath, preparing for their conversation. He revs his engine and literally tries to run her over. What? She jumps into the booth and locks the door. He comes running up to the door, slamming on it, yelling, Where were you last night? And he was absolutely freaking out. She tries to calm him down and tells him, I had to work late, Robert. I'm sorry. I had to work late. There was nothing I could do. He's like, is it money you want? Money? And he starts shoving bills through the mail flap on the booth door. Oh, my gosh. Just throwing money at her, yelling, you whore. I went through a lot of trouble and you didn't show up. You selfish bitch. You ruined everything. It was so different than the kind Robert that had been coming around. He sounds unstable. She said his whole face like changed before Mm -hmm. her eyes. Mm -hmm. Two weeks go by. Robert doesn't come back to the station. 
But even though that problem may have gone, the beeper calls are starting to come through more frequently, sometimes several times in one hour. Oh, jeez. And the calls start getting more and more violent. Beep, beep, beep. I'm going to tie you up. <laughs> you. Then cut your eyes out. Oh, my gosh. Beep, beep, beep. I can't wait until I tie you up and then I'm going to cut you up. Oh. She is terrified. And these are actual quotes. She didn't know who to tell. She started having nightmares. Of course she did, poor thing. Jeez. Quote, I felt like I was living in hell and being punished by Satan himself. 2 a.m. a beeper call goes off. Beep, beep, beep. And then whimpering sounds. She couldn't tell if it was whimpering from an animal or a human. But then it became very apparent that it was a woman. And she was absolutely terrified. Beep started coming in that night with sounds of someone being hit. Oh, no. Oh, God. And screams from the other end. She is absolutely terrified. And she does not know what to do. Keep in mind, again, she's 19. One night shift, she was thinking about her friend Sherry. It had been six months. She remembered reading a paper that night with the front page covering Sherry's case and the fact that there were several missing girls in the area. She was startled by a phone call. It was her mother in pure panic. She said that she had just gotten off the phone with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and they've linked you to a homicide, What? she told Sarah. As soon as she hung up with her mother, a new call comes in from the police department saying she is in great danger and she needs to get out of sight right away. No questions, no more information, just hide. So she hid in the office in the back of the gas station. They were coming. They're on their way. But she had to hide until they got there. Oh, my gosh. My heart's beating so fast right now. (laughs) The police detective finally shows up, which she said felt like forever. They tell her that at 6 p.m. that night, they found the body of Sherry out in the desert, dumped near Hell Hole Canyon. She had been raped and brutally murdered. Police had discovered a wallet on the scene. And inside the wallet was a piece of paper. On the paper was Sarah's name and home address. Oh, no. She was then escorted to the police car and told to lay flat in the back seat. Where are her children? Her children were with her babysitter. Okay. They take her to the police station. And when they arrive, they give her a mugshot book to look through. Mm -hmm. They say, look through it. Let us know if you recognize the man. She's looking, turning pages. She sees a Hispanic man, an older man, a fat blonde man, an Asian man, r- raking her brain of well, like she doesn't even know people what, that come to the station. I mean, she doesn't she's even like, know who she's looking. Yeah, for. exactly. She doesn't recognize them. I don't know any of these men, she says. And they say, keep looking. Do you know this man? Then she realizes they're phrasing this man. All of these photos of different looking men in this, this book same were one? all one man. And she keeps turning the pages and she sees it. Oh, that's Robert Generoso pointing out a photo of the man who tried to run her over. Keep looking, they tell her. Then she finds a photo of Andrew Ireland, Sherry's oh. married boyfriend. Oh. It all starts to connect to her. The beeper calls. The same man coming to the station posed as a different man. This man's real name is Stephen Peter Morin. You're in grave danger, they tell her. The police tell her that Peter Morin had been taking names off of tombstones, the same age as him, and he'd send off for their birth certificates and use them as aliases. He had been killing since 1969. What? It's 1980. Oh, my God. He was on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted. He was, quote, one of the most brutal and sadistic serial killers they had ever heard of. They tell Sarah that he had beat and raped Sherry several times. At this time during the interview on the Obsessed show I mentioned before, Sarah just looks at the camera. Tears are just welling in her eyes. And she says, I think he was killing my friend while he was beeping me. Eventually, he killed Sherry by shooting her in the head. Oh, my gosh. The police go on to show Sarah more files and more photos of other girls that had been killed and tortured. She saw things in the photos that he had threatened her over the beeper. Mm. Cut eyes out. 
oh. cut into pieces. Why did the police show her that? She didn't need to see I that. I don't know. And the whole time I read it in the book and the whole time I saw it on the show, I d- it doesn't... I think they were just trying to prove to her that she was that in danger. That she is in serious danger. This is not something to be taken yeah, lightly. Yeah, but still, she's a 19-year-old kid. I'm sure the police had their reasons. I mean, who yeah, are we to question? That, exactly. But I just can't imagine as a 19-year-old being like, okay. <laughs> mm. Are you ready for this number? I don't know. The police knew of 44 women and seven men he had already killed. Holy smokes. Well, he's been working for, what, 11 years, so... Her instant thought, he knows where I live. Yeah. They couldn't keep an eye on her around the clock, though. They couldn't afford that. They told her, get out of town. Get out of here. So, the next day, she dropped kids off at the sitter and went to her apartment with her friend, Sally, to grab things just you know her you know quickly grab stuff and then she'd go back and get the girls and and but get the police out of town. didn't accompany her just for that one trip nope walking up to the apartment door sally squeezes sarah's hand hard mouthing get in the car and the girls run back to the car as fast as they can sally says he was inside he was there i could hear him he was behind the door oh god two hours later police come and search the home there had, in fact, been an intruder. Way and to go, he had Sally. Fled, he had fled through the back door. There was a chair behind the front door. Evidence said he had been sitting in that chair probably since the night before waiting for her. Holy smokes. There was like fast food wrappers and like just the ho- the apartment was a mess. But it, there was evidence that he had been there for a long time. With the police there, she goes in and starts grabbing things. And then she realizes her address book is gone. Oh, no. She can't even go to mom. He has it. Now where can she go? He knows everything. Sarah goes to Bullhead, Arizona, to her mother's house. Now there, the police could afford at least a police block on her mother's street. But she's not allowed outside, not even to take the trash out. It's now December of 1981. She gets a phone call. Mm Mm-hmm. I still know where you're at. Oh, my gosh. And I'm still going to kill you. Now, I can't even express to you how emotional she was in this interview on the show. I mean, reading the book was enough. But then watching this interview, she was just sitting there thinking about it. You could just tell just reliving every moment. Of course she was. So after this, she decides to move in with her uncle and aunt out in Texas. On December 12th, 1981, Stephen Peter Morin was captured trying to get on a Greyhound bus, leaving San Antonio, Texas. Oh. He was in Texas. And police believe he was on the hunt for Sarah. Oh, my gosh. He had his sights set on her. So this is just Sarah's story. She is one of very few that have actually come forward with their own tales of this monster. There was an article I read in The Guardian written by Chris Clark back in 2005. He writes about how Morin... He went by Ray Constantine then. He had weaseled his life into um, Chris's mom's life. Like literally drove up one day, knocked on the door and asked, do you know if there's any like empty apartments around here that I can move into? And within two days, she was moving him into their house. What? Yeah. And Chris says that back then his mom didn't make the best love life decisions. Oh my gosh, (laughs) I guess not. Like she even, he even stopped his mom ordered like a copy of his birth certificate to give to this Ray Constantine guy. Oh and he, my gosh. Chris intercepted it and was like, mom, what the heck are you doing? But the article was really kind of sad because he remembered one time he was walking up to the house and Ray or, you know, Stephen Warren was having like sweating and having a really hard time. He was stapling carpet into the back of his car. Yeah. And so Chris helped him carpet up the back of this guy's car later realizing that he's basically soundproofing, of course, this murder vehicle. He didn't hurt his mother, did he? No. She's actually I'm trying to remember all the details, but like they would go on trips in this car and he would just, they would go all over the place. You know, that's why we said from the beginning they were in Texas, Colorado, Nevada, and they would go on these like trips. And he would like disappear at hours at a time or sometimes days. And then he'd show back up at the hotel or wherever he had left Chris's mom and would be like, we have to get out of town. And she would just go like 
she's actually another one that helped find him because she he left her in texas he literally left her abandoned in texas and so she called the police and was like the last i saw him was here this is where we were so by that point he's on the 10 most wanted he'd been wanted for so long that you know they followed that lead as soon as they possibly could when being tried in 1982 morin had withdrawn all appeals and actually pleaded guilty to the four counts of murder he was facing so all of those murders they only had proof of four in four one for carrie marie scott a 21 year old he had shot and killed while while trying to steal her car in texas one for Jana Bruce in Corpus Christi, Texas. One for Cheryl Ann Daniel in Las Vegas. And one for Sheila Whalen in Golden, Colorado. Again, these are just the four they had evidence for. He is suspected for far more. More than 48, actually. And like I said before, he withdrew all of his appeals. So basically, he volunteered for the death penalty. He claimed that he didn't have any memory of killing any of these women or anything. But he claimed he was guilty. He looked forward to his execution day and referred to it as graduation day. Because you see, there's a little twist here. Stephen Peter Morin became a born-again Christian. Oh, good grief. In prison? Actually, it's a funny story. Margaret Mayfield Palm was on her way to do some volunteer work. And before leaving, she claims that she was called to go back into her home and grab all of her scripture books and notebooks of passages that she had written down. She went to volunteer, then went to Kmart to finish up Christmas shopping. Walking back to her car, she feels a gun on her back and turns, and she sees a man she calls Rabid, crying. And she says, do you know Jesus Christ? (laughs) And I think we can laugh because this is from her sermon that she gives on this situation, and everybody in the church laughed so i think it's kind of funny it's okay that we laughed. yeah it's okay we laughed <laughs> well i mean the last thing i'd say if somebody's pressing a somebody gun has to a me. gun to me and he <laughs> just looks a mess i would not be like do you know jesus like i don't i don't have i don't know so she says do you know jesus christ and he says no i don't get in your car she didn't know who this was she didn't know he was a wanted man on the fbi's most wanted list for the last 10 years She didn't know that he had brutally raped and murdered women all over the country. And at 2 a.m. that morning, he had shot and killed a girl that he abducted. And here she sat with him at 2 p.m. But the spirit of God was strong with her. And she put her hands on him and prayed over him while he drove. Oh, my God. They drove around for 10 hours praying, discussing those books and scriptures that she put into her car that morning. She claimed dominion over the demons inside of him. He said, quote, I can't believe this. I'm in this car with this religious freak. (laughs) (laughs) But they go on like this, talking and praying together. Her abduction testimony is a sermon. Like I said, it's on YouTube. It's about 35 minutes long, but it's crazy good. I mean, honestly, she's just a very brave, strong. No kidding. She had such a calmness in such a scary situation. Morin claims he was converted to Christianity by by Margaret. He freed Palm. He let her go. And she told police, as soon as he let her go, she called police and told them his plan of taking a bus to Fort Worth. So she did the right thing on there too. She wasn't trying to protect him. He was picked up at the bus station. In jail, he led Bible study with his death row inmates actually gaining a degree in biblical teachings. Holy And like I said, he looked forward to his execution, even basically bypassing all the appeals and courts and just volunteering for it. On March 13th, 1985, Morin finally got his graduation day after 45 minutes of struggling to find a viable vein for the lethal injection over 45 minutes. He was, was he a dehydrated? Heavy, <laughs> was a heavy drug user. Oh. And they just tried and tried and tried and they could not get a good vein. It took them that long. Oh, gosh. He gives his last words. Heavenly Father, I give thanks for this time, for the time that we have been together. The fellowship in your world, the Christian family presented to me. Allow your Holy Spirit to flow as I know your love has been showered upon me. Forgive them for they know not what they do as I know that you have forgiven me as I have forgiven them. 
Lord Jesus, I commit my soul to you. I praise you and I thank you. He breathed in his last breath and said, Lord Jesus, I commit my soul to you and died at 12.55 a.m. So many unanswered questions. Like I said, over 40 suspected murders. But he didn't admit to any of those. Nope. And this chameleon killer was 30 years old oh when he died. Oh, my gosh. That means he started when he was 20. No. He started when he was like 17? Yeah. Raping. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, if you count the rapes, the number was in the hundreds. But the 40-something is how many people they think he murdered. So here's my thing. I, I, I can't take his Christianity away from him. I can't take his religious beliefs away from him because he's the only one who really knows. It's and between he did, him and God. And he did volunteer to the death penalty, basically. He, he, was just, he just took guilty. He didn't even, right. didn't even fight it at all. No appeals, nothing. He told his lawyers, don't, don't appeal for me. This is happening. But it's just all of this just seems like he says what Jesus said when he was on the cross. It's just it, it's infuriating to me. Right. Because he what he put Sarah through of just torturing her the way he did and then killing Sherry the way he what did. What he did with all those people. And ju- exactly that. Like I said, Sarah's story is just a minor story. And that just gives how demonic this man was. Just a little glimpse into him. It's just, and then he just has the audacity to say that. Just, well, and everybody would, has a right to it. I'm sorry. I, I can't judge, but it's just very infuriating. Well, you would think that if, I mean, yeah, that's between him and God, but a real Christian heart would try to put other families at peace mm-hmm. by. Giving answers? Yeah. You'd think. But he claims he doesn't remember any of the killings. Well, isn't that convenient? Mm-hmm. He says he doesn't remember any of them. And he was a heavy drug user. Again, I'm not making excuses. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around somebody that, that it's not even possible to wrap my mind around. Well, that would make sense with his um, with his personality change from being really sweet Very and then all of a so. sudden going ballistic. To be a chameleon like that, he wasn't on drugs all the time. Now, this is crazy because Stephen Peter Morin was such a chameleon. I mean, one picture, he looks like a Hispanic man. Another, he looks like a fat, like almost frat boy, blonde, long hair. And then the other picture, he looks like a very thin Asian man. He's fairly attractive, though, like in his normal state. But he was just such a chameleon. Okay. If he really did not know what he was doing, he doesn't remember what he's doing, why does he feel like he has to change his persona? Mm -hmm. I know. That doesn't make sense. And get all these different aliases off tombstones and stuff? He knew what he was doing. I know. So what I think, (laughs) because, you know, I'm a know-it-all, he's in Texas. I feel like this change in religion is almost like he was just... He wanted Another somebody chameleon? to save him. Exactly. He wanted to be saved. He didn't want to be, you know, he, maybe he thought that was his way out. They couldn't kill him because he was born again. A, yeah. He's a Texas Christian now. Is that where he um, was, was executed? Was mm-hmm. Texas? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I know. I've never heard of him. Isn't he probably one of the scariest serial killers and I, like I said, I, I read the book and then doing the research and there's really not a lot of research out there on him. There's a couple people that have come forward that knew him, like I said, of um, in the Guardian article and um, Sarah's story. But yeah, he's just, I mean, he was on the FBI's most wanted for 10 years. That is crazy. I'll post a picture of him for you guys. He's, whew. Okay. I know 1980 sounds a long time ago to yeah, you. Nine years before I was born. Okay, 1980, I was a year younger than Sarah. Oh my gosh, it's so scary. So it was like, oh, she had three kids. I can imagine having three kids that, <laughs> and I was her age. She said she had all three of them by the time she was 16. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I can't imagine either. Three little girls. I mean, I was getting ready to go to college. Last Mm-mm. thing I had in my mind was kids. And starting a life, though, she did really well for she was jumping a go- on a new job and she got she her own apartment. She was a go-getter, yeah. She, it's just her pers- personality. She just... Wow. Golly, what a story. I know. 
I'm going to sit back and enjoy this beer now. And I would love to hear a ghost story. A ghost story, darling. Okay, here we go. All right. I was excited about this because I used to be a big Stephen King fan. Uh, back in the day, I loved Stephen King. Pet <laughs> Cemetery, Cujo. You know, oh gosh! Oh, there's the stand. Oh my gosh, the stand was great. <laughs> oh, uh, one of my favorite. The Stephen... only one I really know of is The Shining, and that's where I'm going. Oh my gosh, I love it! So, The Shining by Stephen King was a terrifying movie. I thought Jack Nicholson is right. It was directed by uh, Stanley Kubik and starring Jack Nicholson. Oh, Jack Nicholson is so spooky in that movie. I think it, besides The Exorcist, it's one of the scariest movies I've mm -hmm. ever seen. So scary. I mean, the psychological part of it. So anyway, I was pretty excited when I got to do the paranormal from Colorado because, of course, I chose the Stanley Motel where The Shining takes place. Hold on, is it the Stanley Hotel or Stanley Motel? <laughs> because pretty sure it's a hotel. When I think of motel, I think of <laughs> psycho. Hotel, where the shining takes place. Oh my gosh. The story of the Stanley begins, and it's, it's actually, I'm going to put this history in here because it's actually really interesting. Really interesting, I'm sure. I don't Be know any of it. I'm so excited. Begins in 1903. When Freeland Stanley, a wealthy inventor, came to visit the valley, he was recuperating from an illness and was frail, thin, and weak. Very close to death, actually. He and his wife were amazed at the recovery after only a couple of months in the valley. And Freeland vowed that he would return each summer for the rest of his life. There was only one problem. And it was a major problem. The valley was not a very exciting venue. Um, <laughs> it was a small town with not much to do except maybe hunting and fishing. The Stanleys were used to the culture and sophistication they had on the East Coast. So, I don't know what you do, but the Stanleys decided they were going to change that. <laughs> they decided to build a grand hotel. Of course. And six years later, in 1909, the Stanley Hotel opened its doors. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that? Just a few years down the road. Yeah, I no. want culture. Yeah, let's just do this. Why not? Here amidst the trees, streams, wilderness, wildlife, stood this magnificent hotel with electric lights, mm. telephones, bathrooms in every suite, uniformed servants, and a fleet of automobiles the guests could use. Oh, my gosh. Of course, they were probably all Stanley-designed steam cars. I was just going to ask, yeah. As Freeland and his twin brother, Francis, co-founded the Stanley Motor Carriage Company. Oh. Which built steam-powered automobiles. The little town of Estes Park benefited from the hotel as well. Because now it was an official municipality with a power plant, waterworks, and civic groups. Waterworks, like Monopoly? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You know, like water plant. I got it. Are you sure? Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Unfortunately, by the 1970s, again, I know you think that's a long time ago, but. <laughs> yeah, still before me. The hotel had fallen into disrepair and was a ghost of its former self. But it had been 70 years. Well, almost. But this was a magnificent place. Yeah, you'd think that, yeah. Well, then the tables turned for the hotel. Instead of being visited with a wrecking ball, oh, I know this is corny, the hotel was visited by Stephen King and his wife, Tabitha. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No. He came in like a wrecking ball. Yep, there you go. Yeah, there Put I go. Together. You have no idea what I'm talking about. No, yet. I know that song. Oh, you do? Yes. Oh, good, Mom. In 1974, they stopped for a night in Estes Park, staying at the old rundown hotel. The hotel had already closed for the season and had only a few staff members there. The couple was, however, checked into room 217, the presidential suite. 
They were the only paying guests on site. Oh gosh, that would be scary in itself. And I then, know, and, and it's a rundown hotel. hotel. I know. So did Stephen King do that on purpose? Does he look for not motivation? What's the word I'm looking for? Well, the last time I talked to Stephen, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Does he get inspiration? Maybe by maybe he was attracted places? to this place. I mean, it's, it's still. No, you know, it's, it's run down, but it's still a magnificent structure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I just wonder if he chose to stay there. Well, he was like inspiration. Forced to stay there, but <laughs> <laughs> or was he a starving writer still? <laughs> so they had to stay there. Mm, I don't think he was. But it's off season, and they're the only. And they're traveling through. I don't know how many places there are in Estes. I mean, I've been there, but I don't. They're the only ones there in this huge hotel. I know that is so scary. That night, the author supposedly had a nightmare. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but you will too. In which he saw his terrified little son running down the hotel's long, empty hallways, being chased by a, quote, predatory, possessed fire hose. scare me i think i might laugh if i saw my boys being chased by a hose i don't know it might be kind of scary too if it was gonna eat them or something oh, i don't know i just need a laugh after Stephen peter <sighs> morin he woke shaking and drenched in sweat so he stepped out to the balcony and was inspired as he sat there the layout for his third book and first bestseller was developed. That's so cool. The Shining was born. And because of The Shining, especially the movie, the rebirth of the Stanley began. Good for them. Isn't that uh, just like fate? Today, the hotel has been restored to its original beauty with beautiful rooms and suites, restaurants, a spa, and a range of tours from historical to wilderness to ghost tours. One can even choose the ghost adventure package, <laughs> which includes a room on the haunted fourth floor, a pocket-sized electromagnetic field reader, and other little gifts such as a mug with Redham printed on it. <laughs> I love it. Which, of course, comes from the movie The Shining, which, by the way, plays continuously on a monitor over the counter where tickets for the tours are sold. It used to be on a channel. That's what I was going to say. I, I thought a girlfriend had told me who stayed there that it played on a channel in the room in on repeat. the rooms. Sort of like Christmas Story does yeah, yeah, yeah. at Christmas Day. Yeah. Um, it, it, but this one played continuously 24 hours every day yeah. on a certain channel in your rooms. They but don't do it that doesn't anymore? anymore. No. Oh, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> that would be kind of scary. The people that work there are probably like... Right. But we're just so think, sick of that movie, I'm but sure. But just think if you and the boys were staying there and they accidentally went to that channel. I mean, that would be so scary. And this is true. So so if you've seen the movie, you know it's eerie as all get out. But what about paranormal activity in the hotel now? Right. Well, from what I've read, the hotel is very haunted. But here's the weird thing. There have been very few documented deaths at the hotel. Oh, I mean, not any more than any other hotel. Right. I mean, it doesn't stand out. But there are ghosts. Mr. Stanley died in 1940, and since then has been reported that his apparition has been seen at the reception desk <laughs> in the hotel's concert hall, which was a favorite place for Flora Stanley to play the piano. You can sometimes hear a piano playing, but the room is empty. <laughs> Paul is also said to reside in the concert hall. He was an employee in the early days of the hotel. One of his jobs was to enforce the 11 p.m. curfew at <laughs> oh the hotel. Gosh. That sucks. <laughs> Perhaps it is his ghost that visitors have heard saying, get out late at night. A construction worker said, Well, because if they're out past 11, they might get chased with a hose. <laughs> Bad joke. Okay. Sorry. A construction worker sanding the floors claimed that he felt Paul nudge him. And tour groups have reported that Paul turns their flashlights on and off. I think you've witnessed doing that. Yeah. And at, at some place doing that. 
Hotel cleaning staff say that the spirits don't seem to like vacuums, <laughs> which they demonstrate by continuously turning the vacuums off whenever they're turned on. That's hilarious. The most requested room is the one Stephen King and his wife stayed of in. Of course. 217, which is said Jim Carrey. <laughs> oh, I don't my know gosh. if this is true, but it said that Jim Carrey ran out in the middle of the night. While on location for Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. He was staying in that room and he ran out in the middle of the night. Oh my because gosh. Because he was scared. Now I have no. But the real ghostly action seems to be on the fourth floor. A hundred years ago, this floor was nothing but an attic where female employees, children, and their nannies stayed. Okay. You know, you come to a nice hotel, you send your kids away. Oh, the days. In room 401 is where guests have reported hearing children running, laughing, and playing. Oh. Every so often, a guest will report seeing a child standing in the doorway of their room with the door wide open. Oh, gosh. This is so this creepy is so to creepy. me. so creepy. The child is just staring at them. No. <laughs> but when the guest gets closer, the child disappears. Oh, my gosh. And to top it off, there seems to be a closet door that has a knack of opening and shutting on its own. Room 428 is another active room. Guests have reported furniture moving and hearing footsteps above them. But that's impossible. The roof slopes above that room. Oh my gosh. Unless it's reindeer from Santa's sleigh. There's nothing there. <laughs> There's also a friendly cowboy who likes what? to pop in. And random. sit at the corner of the bed. <laughs> That's so random. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Howdy, folks. What? <laughs> Welcome to Colorado. Like, it just doesn't even make sense. Some dude sitting on the corner of your bed. Yeah. Oh, no. Now we're going to move to the grand staircase at the Stanley. There's a great story of a guest from Texas who took pictures of the staircase. When he got back home and looked at the pictures, he noticed a ghostly image of a woman at the top of the stairs. Mm -mm. But he does not remember anyone being on the stairs when he took the pictures. Mm -mm. Author and part-time paranormal investigator Richard Estep leads ghost tours on the weekends. He has traveled all over the world visiting haunted locations, and he has experienced many paranormal activities. He says that the Stanley is his favorite. Cool. And has the most paranormal activity than any place he has ever visited. Wow. I know. So I'm going to conclude with a couple of his quotes because I think he sums things up very nicely. He thumbs things up? He sums things up. Okay. <laughs> Places get ghosts for different reasons, such as tragedy or bloodshed. But also people tend to haunt places where they were very happy during their lifetimes. Yeah. A quote. Yeah. I sense we're seeing people coming back because they deeply love the hotel. He also said of the Stanley Hotel, it's a really magical place in that sense, where people experience some of the happiest moments of their lives. Weddings, engagements, soldiers back from the war, hmm. sitting on the porch, drinking whiskey with their friends. <laughs> Hearing Epson's words kind of takes the scare away yeah. from seeing ghosts at the Stanley. It's almost as if they just wanted to join us in having fun and really enjoying yeah, the hotel. Yeah, they're just like residual happy times. There actually was an explosion at the Stanley. An explosion? Yeah. And I can't tell you what year it was. Whoops. Part, I think, of the second floor, right above the kitchen. Okay. Uh, blew up there. It was an accident in the kitchen or something, or pipes or something. And one of the, oh gosh, maids was injured. Oh, okay. And I think her name was Elizabeth. But she didn't die, and she came back. And people say that her ghost was there. But she worked there until she was like 90 years old. Oh, my gosh. Until she actually died. I mean, if her ghost is there, it's because... She was there for so long. She was happy there, I yeah. guess. There's stories about her on that second... I think it was the second floor. Well, 217. If there's couples that come there to, you know, to spend the night, but they're sure. not married. Uh-oh. And they're in bed, they'll wake up. With a feeling of something between them. What? <laughs> the ghost like lie between them? <laughs> like, mm -mm, no, you not don't. good. 
Oh, my um, gosh. There's also stories of businessmen coming to the hotel and uh, in the morning finding everything packed. There's <laughs> folded, packed in their suitcase and their suitcase sitting outside the door. She can come home with me anytime. <laughs> I got loads of laundry upstairs she could fold for me. Uh, so I think she's still kind of that ghost hangs out and they think it's this Very Elizabeth. matronly. Yeah. That's awesome. Taking care of things. Oh my god, I love, I love that. It was like they enjoyed life at the hotel. Well, it's funny because the movie is such a dark, so scary. Yeah, such a dark, so many dark hauntings where it sounds like the real spirits are definitely way more positive. Yeah, thank God there's no hoses chasing people, except for Jim Carrey or twins randomly standing there. Yeah, poor Jim Carrey. So that's the Stanley Hotel. That's awesome. It was fun. You know, we say this a lot. Wow, we need to go there and check it out. That would be so fun, though. So is it, is it pretty fancy now? Yes, it's pretty fancy. Yeah, it'd be cool just to even go have lunch there. Or just see it. Yeah, with the hotel. No, that'd be so fun to go. Yeah, I'm sure there's tons to do out there. Well, like and I Colorado said, Colorado is beautiful. Tours, you know, wilderness tours that are fun. Um, I Do think they still have the people that take your kids for you for the day? Nannies. <laughs> Send them all up to the fourth floor. <laughs> I can fold my clothes and take my kids any day. <laughs> no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> fun. Yeah. Well, this is another good episode, Mom. Wow. Yours was just... I know. I'm trying Spooky. to stay positive and get into your story, but my mind is every time I reread it or re- rehash it or just start thinking about it again. Like I said, you want to go lock your doors and like think about the people you run into and lock are they really doors. who they say they are? Like, oh, lock your doors and don't answer your phone. Yeah. <laughs> don't talk to anybody. Just listen to the podcast. Killer hangover. <laughs> And that's your socialization for the day. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to us. Next episode, 25. 25. We are going to tell you a few goodies from Tennessee. That's right. So if you guys have been to the Stanley Hotel, anywhere we've covered or have any haunted stories of your own, and like we've said before, if you have a brewery or a distillery or I mean, bre- breweries, almost as hard to say as burglary <laughs> i don't know maybe it's just the beer anything you guys want to recommend for the podcast please email us at killer hangover podcast at gmail.com again we ask if you listen on apple Podcasts, we'd really love for you guys to take the time if you enjoyed the podcast to rate and leave us a nice review we really appreciate it you can also find us on social media i'll post some pictures of the creepy chameleon killer Stephen Peter Morin, as well as some. Now I'm going to have fun looking up some creepy pictures from the Stanley Hotel to post. Oh, I don't know if they're creepy. They're just Stanley Motel, as she wants to call it. <laughs> don't She's that. rolling her face at me. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you guys have a fantastic week. This was fun, Mama. Yes, it was. Cheers, Mama. Love you, kid. <laughs>